Hello, and welcome to IAOP's podcast series, Pulsecast, where we explore topics big and small in a world of collaborative partnerships. Thank you for joining us, and now the host of Pulsecast. Hi, I'm Amanda Safdar, and I'm thrilled to welcome you back to the second installment of our OWS 2.0 podcast series. Listen in on this breakout session from PwC as Boris and Skanda take us on a deep dive into innovative sourcing methods to drive value from agile development, all while still holding vendors accountable for outcomes. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming to our session. Um, I think this topic is just starting to become a conversation. I think over the next couple of years, you're gonna have a lot more of these sessions. And not necessarily just agile sourcing, uh, but Agile went from the software development methodology and kind of things for IT geeks to worry about to now we have Agile operating models and Agile marketing. And it's really changing how some companies choose to operate and work. And it's, it's no longer just how do I build software, but it's really an operating model change. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about what Agile is. I think many of you have heard about it. I think most, many of you have heard some of the buzzwords you know, whether it's Scrum or Daily Stand-Up or an Epic, like there's a bunch of different variations. I think the point is it's a move from a traditional way of defining scope, detailing it out, building, and then having a very linear process to having a much more iterative process. I think that's the key takeaway. Um, so be, that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, I think before we get started, I want to just say thank you to Dan again for joining us up here. He's a practitioner, I would say, at the front lines of this. And this is, um, there's not a right or wrong answer, I think, because this is the beginning of a conversation. I wish this room was a bit actually of a round table versus this setup. Because I think I would love to hear your voice and your opinion and your experiences, because I think we all have a lot to learn from each other um, as we adjust and evolve. Okay, let's Hey, quick question. Right? Uh, just so we, we can ground to the audience, who in here is a customer? versus who's a supplier provider. All right, well good, thank you. Thanks. So what, what is Agile, right? Agile is an iterative development methodology. That's how it first came about. Uh, why do people use Agile? Uh, easier to manage priorities. A lot of research shows that it adds more value, faster to value, uh, more business IT alignment. Lots of reasons people move to this direction. And you can see some of the key stats, right? 90% of organizations are using Agile in some, some shape or form. Um, I think a lot of people are using Agile lingo without necessarily practicing the process and methodology. You can see, based on the same data, roughly 20% of the organization have used themselves as mature. I think if you dig into it, it's probably even less. However, having said that, if you look at the trends of building software and delivering capabilities to the market, whether it's back office software or it's, you know, mark tech, 46% uh, already use it, and 40% plan to use it even more. So it's gonna become more and more relevant. Um, so the immediate question becomes, well, what changes? Because it's, the traditional fixed price contract doesn't really apply in a situation where scope can't be defined. And the Traditional TNM contract is great, but there's no accountability, no metrics, and you kind of keep all the risks with the client, which also a lot of people are uncomfortable with, especially in the procurement profession, where we had all these advancements to shift the risk and improve quality and tie it to outcomes. Now all of a sudden, Agile comes back, and instead of having a better, speedier methodology, it says, well, it's a free-for-all with no structure, which we think is not the answer. 
So how do we deal with it? Well, I think to understand that, we really wanted to break down Agile into sort of six categories of what's changing. And like I said before, this is an operating model change as much as anything else. Um, it, it's a way of working. It's a way of how you structure your teams. So what we'll do today is we'll hit on each one of these areas on the page, um, and, and Scott and Dan uh, will do a bit of a deep dive. I'm going to welcome your questions throughout. But for those of you who may be not as familiar with Agile, let me just do a very quick um, primer on what's changing and why it's the way you source for Agile it has to be very different than the way you traditionally source for, let's say, development project. So first of all, probably the biggest thing, scope. Before you would say, what I want to build, what are my requirements, let's contract for that, fixed price, fixed timeline, I'll measure it. Uh, very hard to do in Agile, because Agile says, by the time you gather all your requirements, they change. So let's not contract for something we don't know and wait a year to see their outputs. Let's cut them into smaller chunks, focus on minimal viable product, and adjust as we go. So it's a concept of fixed requirements just gone out the window. Then funding, okay, so if you don't have a fixed scope and fixed timing, how much money do you need to deliver? And not only to give to your consulting partner, how much money do you ask for internally? And how do you know what's enough? And how do you budget for it? So all of a sudden there's ambiguity around, A, how much money do I need? And how do I measure the ROI on it? Um, we talked about pricing a little bit, right? So you have the, you're moving away from the fixed price concept to something a lot more flexible. Uh, and quite frankly, something that can be adjusted along the way. I think what we'll also talk a lot about today is that metrics change. It's no longer are you on time, are you on budget? You start getting into metrics about how are you changing? Are you getting faster? Are you adding more capabilities? You start to put dollars on those capabilities. Um, we'll talk about talent. Um, and not necessarily talent from the perspective of what kind of talent you need to do software development. We'll focus on talent as from a procurement perspective. As you move to these more agile, more uh, fun, uh, sourcing methods, as you think about more risk sharing and having everybody really, everybody's incentives aligned, what kind of talent do you need from a procurement perspective to have the right conversations with vendors? Um, and we'll talk about supplier managers. I think how you manage your vendors and how you treat them really has to change too because I know we've been talking about moving from a vendor to a partner mentality for decades now. But I think this takes it to another level, because now there's not a clear start and not a clear date, but there's definitely value. So how do you get people aligned with the definition of value and working against it? So I think with that, um, we'll do double click into each one of these. And Scott, I'll hand it over to you to talk about scope. Thanks, Boris. And uh, Dan, Boris, feel free to chime in as we start talking through this. So from a scope perspective, if we start looking at Agile, right? I think it has a combination of elements of you know, what goes into a good contract from really defining what a vendor does versus what we do, coming into a little bit of flexibility of how we are going to uh, you know, have a process to manage the scope with the relationship and start looking at certain aspects of how we want to manage that scope. What, the first step is defining the scope itself. Right? Uh, we have elements over there where requirements are not fully defined. You need to have a good process to be able to, uh, uh, over a period of time, get learnings. It's a continuous learnings kind of process. Uh, the definition of change, right? We need to have a good change management approach methodology that's built into people and their skills 
that are operating in agile teams. Right? They, they definitely need to have um, an aspect of continuous learning. Uh, data needs to come in, you learn, you need to start eliminating aspects of scope that's not required and keep changing and moving on. Uh, roles of people, what does a product manager do versus what does an IT developer do? There is a little bit of commingling aspects. Roles of business analysts are kind of changing today. As we start getting into that, I think we need to start defining what does Don mean? Because Don is really not an agile concept. Traditional waterfall, get through a certain set of requirements, go through a checklist, get to Don, is not today's Don. Don is, again, a continuous every two to three weeks kind of process, depending on how you uh, build this. Having a strong delivery process, as I said, a very well-defined role responsibilities over here. Uh, it's, it's more centered towards process than actual deliverables coming out of this. Those deliverables largely tied to outcomes over here. And we should start learning to say, how do I avoid doing certain bits of activities? Right? It's not really Six Sigma, but start eliminating the unnecessary aspects, those small percentage that over a period of time that actually leads to value creation. I'll pause over here to see if, Dan, you have any comments over here from your learnings at HCSE? The, uh, I do, but not on the slide, Skanda. Uh, as you get a little bit deeper, then I'll start Perfect. layering those in. I think one thing I want to highlight is this is sort of, I think a misconception I see quite a bit. This is not applicable to every single project or everything, anything, everything you do. And I think people sometimes try to force Agile, the statistics say it's good, so let's force it on everything. I think it's the number one mistake we see people make. There's products that change a lot. Uh, I do a lot of work with CPG clients, and more and more CPGs will invest into consumer-facing applications, analytics, whereas you're constantly learning, and based on what they learn, they want to change and evolve. Agile is great for the application. Um, for your core finance application, Maybe you just want to be very clear of whether it's business rules, build it and be done with it, and never touch it for another 20 years so to change it again. So um, being clear when to apply this, and when this works, and when it actually creates a necessary confusion. Well, to that point, if I can add to that, so there's a lot of change, a lot of behavior, a lot of different mindset. Um, so at HCSC, we're in our fourth year of the journey of agile development. So for us, it's keep it simple, look at the Agile Manifesto, understand it, um, and then the mindset within the organization. So the first three years, as we tried to change the mindset from mainframe COBOL programmers, right, some pretty good folks, all the way to the millennials coming in who are learning this at universities, uh, the struggle was getting good folks with good skill sets to change the way they thought about development uh, and actually how they thought about what they were doing with development. So in Agile, uh, the way we operate, it doesn't matter what you're writing, whether it's a claim systems, AP systems, or whatever, you're not gonna know that. We need good Java developers. So just getting past that milestone with the legacy folks uh, was, was a journey that we didn't expect. Uh, not only with the internal folks, but with the suppliers who claim they know Agile, who really they don't. Right? Some people on their teams do, but that's not how they make money. So, 
From a funding mechanism perspective, I think we touched upon it a little earlier. There are multiple options you have. And as you get to different stages, there are different ways you can fund it. You can just allocate a project. You can just allocate funding to a project or to a certain epic or to certain features. Or as you get to certain capacity kind of models, you can allocate it to an entire user story that's out there. And as you go further down, you can start you know, doing a portfolio kind of funding, the traditional way of funding certain kinds of you know, staffing models. And all of them comes with pros and cons. I, and I think, again, it's, it's a way that we need to imply certain continuous aspects of learning over there of you know, what's working well, what's not working well, start funding what's working well better and better to just increase value out there. Again, capitalization's key elements as, as we start looking at funding mechanisms over here. Uh, Boris, anything else you want to add? No, I, I think this is fairly simple when you talk about one product and one project you can figure this out pretty easily. If you talk about a portfolio of 100 products and projects, this gets very hairy. And I know a lot of finance teams really struggle with how much money am I giving you? What is it being used for? Uh, so simple on the surface, but when you scratch at it, it, it it's, it's really sort of get a problem that hasn't been fully solved, but frankly. Striking a good balance of, you know, when do you want to fund? Obviously, you don't want to do it every, every week, every couple of weeks. But getting to a good cadence of how often do we assess value? I agree. And part of what has helped at HCSC, right, and we're in the healthcare industry, we're, we're best known for Blue Cross Blue Shield, right, and some of the other medical companies, there's nothing but change, right? Whether it's politics, whether it's the evolution of how providers, doctors and nurses, right, are operating, um, we have a lot of change and it happens all the time. So part of the mindset tying to the finances is think about the minimum viable product and that's what we have to do with the business is uh, over the next year, six months, you know, whatever's justified, we're going to deliver this, this component of NVP, which is not going to be your system. So think six, 12 months out, depending on what the corporate culture would tolerate, and that's what you deliver, and then the measure for that MVP, so they can see they get progress. And for us, uh, that's worked pretty well. It's 12 months, and then we get the funding, uh, and then you also get an organic way to say, hey, uh, the mission and the vision of the company's changed. We don't want to put more investment into it. Or it stayed the same. We're going to fund it for another year, and let's layer on another MVP till we get the product. Has anybody in here maybe has a good example that would mind sharing about how to solve this problem? What are some of the maybe innovative ways you guys are able to find the balance of business need, finance needs, and IT needs to actually have money committed? The MVP, I think, is the easiest because you have a problem that you need to solve. You have a limited amount of budget. And then you had a slide previously that said, eliminate the unnecessary. So what is the real problem statement? How do you get to that? Because I was going to ask you, how do you measure necessary, unnecessary? Because you have conflicting um, opinions about what's necessary and what's not necessary. Everybody is a little bit selfish. They're like, my thing is necessary. Finance is wrong, or IT is wrong, or the budget should allow for a no, certain So, so it's, it's a great point. I mean, I think of that, and it goes, in my experience, right, well, it's, it becomes, it goes back to talent people. If you have a good product manager who owns this product, and usually they either come from the business, or at least the business really trusts them that they represent their needs, right. and you kind of let, let this person make that call, 
And he can measure and you know go back and say, well, how often were they right or wrong? But that's all Sunday morning quarterbacking. I'm sorry, excuse me, Monday morning quarterbacking, right? But I think that they, it can be by committee, I don't think. I think you have to have somebody who understands the business, who represents the business, and their success or failures define how well this product emerges. Uh, and there's some personal little incentive for them to be successful. So well, if you're in regulatory area, then it's going to be a no-brainer. Some things are just necessary, you don't have a choice about it. I think that helps. And then um, I think out of six projects that we've actually done through the Agile, we had one good product manager that's not influenced by emotion or anything, right. they're just doing their job, and that's how you're going to be successful. Well, that's hard. You, uh, I think it's constructive resistance, if that makes sense. Because as you're grooming, you have to have the business in the grooming step. Right? And we actually bifurcated the term grooming into technical grooming and functional grooming, uh, just because of the different experience levels from our business. And then on some of the, the stands up and stand downs on a daily basis, we have the business participate. Right? So your business has to be willing to invest that time and they have to see the value of doing that. Otherwise, you have an uphill journey of, of trying to operate with this methodology when the business won't play their part. If they don't play their part, it's not going to work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the biggest value of Agile is the fact that you try to get rid of this. Let me throw it over to all to IT and have to deal with it. It's like, no, no, we're a pod, and the pod has to have a business representation, and it's us. It's not versus, here you go. Here, here's a good example, if I may, that uh, we didn't plan it this way, but it worked, right? So we'll take credit for it. Uh, but we're a large Salesforce shop. And if you go out to a supplier asking for Salesforce uh, resources, first thing you hear about the worldwide market shortage and why our prices are higher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they miss what we're doing in Agile. So I've asked every one of our suppliers, and they eventually get it right with coaching. Uh, but if I need 300 people to write an app that's on Salesforce, do I need Salesforce expertise? Well, the answer is no. I need really good Java developers. They don't even need to know they're on Salesforce. I mean, need Salesforce architects or folks to write the features. But when it comes to where most of my costs are, I just need good Java developers, right? And when the business hears uh, that traditionally they're paying 350, 450, whatever they are for a resource, now we're getting it for 32, 38, whatever it happens to be offshore. We've got their interest. We don't have their confidence yet, but we have their interest. And I think as we get to the next step, it's defining what is value, right? And defining value comes at a cost. And the cost is, in a way, how we define it for the vendors. Traditionally, we have gone through two spectrums of time and material, going back and forth, and then going to fixed fee as we had more waterfall. But today, in Agile, I think people are tending towards back to TNM kind of model. Because what you're really doing is you're buying individuals, you're buying staff or capacity. You're not buying for a certain commitment. There are different ways. And I think getting the right balance between the two of them, and we have done that with, you know, how do you come up with a new, fund, uh, new pricing for a pod, right? You can price for a pod, and a pod comes with a certain capacity. You scale a scrum team with a pod concept. So you're able to turn up a certain group of folks who come together, who have worked together historically, because the teaming concept is absolutely important as you get to Agile. And, and to enable that, I think you really need, like how Dan was talking of, you really need a strong governance, a product manager who has a good vision, 
a good representation from business to really understand that vision, translate it to IT. You need a bunch of Salesforce folks who are really uh, strong architects from a Salesforce side and who can run an IT shop. So it's a very strong governance, a good partnership between business and IT versus just throwing it over the wall like how Boris was talking of. So getting to a good model, TNM with outcomes could be an option. TNM with uh, just getting into a pod kind of pricing in an option. And over a period of time as you mature, get to a fixed concept even with some of these models over there. So I think we are going oscillating back and forth between where the early 2000s we started with TNM to where we got to a maturity of fixed fee. And I think we're swinging somewhere in between today. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would even say it's even stronger than what Tom said. I, I, I completely agree with that. It definitely swings. We see companies kind of do all of this. And the question is probably a third model evolving that is not kind of purely defined. But TNM is great when you're just trying to learn the terminology and you know do your first sprint, if you will. I think once you get any type of scale and you want certain outcomes, picking a couple, one or several strategic partners push them to a fixed price model. Again, it doesn't have to be a fixed price for a year. It could be for a minimum viable product, it could be for a sprint, which is being clear in those outcomes. Um, and, and you know, we have seen people kind of to make them more scalable, so you're not contracting every three weeks. You say, okay, let's let's contract for ten sprints. And by the way, we spent this much more out of each sprint, but you're learning as you go, right? That's part of the point. Um, <clears throat> And that's when people really start seeing value and true results. That also makes it very hard if your operating model says, give me a bunch of staff off people from a bunch of different firms, and we'll have a best of breed group in the spot, because they're all sort of optimizing for themselves versus saying, how do we get everybody's incentives aligned, whether they're employees, or whether it's all as a kind of strategic service provider, maybe with a product manager from a client or a scrum master. So it would have to be, I think, a joint team, but a joint team where you can really get people's incentives towards a common outcome of that product. That, that's, a, that's a good observation to that point. So uh, we're in our second generation, we're just starting, of agile development with our suppliers. So the first three years, version one, um, we intermixed multiple suppliers on a scrum team. Right within the sprint, and theoretically, when you whiteboarded it and you talked to, right, all the suppliers, they all wanted to work together, and it was a disaster. Right, it really killed, killed productivity. Um, uh, it just didn't work well. So uh, we're not going to try to figure out why. We're just going to accept that result. And in the second one, what we promise suppliers is the Scrum team will be uh, staffed by your company. Right? So we can have up to 50% of HCSC employees, which are good, right? Uh, but you'll never have uh, illustratively a Cognizant, you'll never have Infosys sitting in there, or Deloitte, or Accenture. The, and part of that, uh, we had to sell internally a non-traditional contract or a framework, and actually Scanda architected that for us. The, uh, and in that contract, there's theoretically per supplier for us, up to 200 million in market share over three years. But in the contract, we guarantee nothing. It's zero minimum commit uh, and zero dollars, right? Based on how you perform, you earn or you lose market share. So part of the skill, part of the challenge 
is to talk to a tier one or a pure play and help them understand why that's valuable, why they want to participate, why they want to sign, and they do. Right? And then via work order, we go ahead and scale the features that they're going right. to deliver. Um, and then they pay, you know, just based on an hourly rate. Also, we didn't do this in the first version. We had 60-something roles, right? We started with 22, it grew to 60-something, because uh, some of your tier one suppliers are really good at saying, ah, that's not a senior developer, that's a senior developer plus, right? right. What is that? It's margin. The, uh, so what we did is we made 19 roles, uh, we did this with the suppliers, and if you're doing agile development for us, it's these 19 roles and nothing else, right? If you need an architect or you need something, you're not doing agile development, right? You're in another part of the house, uh, and you talk to somebody else to do it. And if I may add to that, I yeah, think yeah. key element to that was, while we had a good structure in place from a rate card and how we scale up and scale down teams, we also had committed outcomes from the vendors, yeah. from SLAs, from penalties that they're going to pay in case they miss it. Even though they had no dollar commits to it, there were elements of commitment of an outcome which is the spirit of Agile, right? We all work together, and we have the ability to quickly turn on and turn off teams to, to unlock that value. Well, to that point, uh, and that's the challenge. So I'm not a sourcing guy, or maybe I am today, I don't know. But, but five years ago when I started this journey, I was a transformation guy that got placed in the sourcing organization. Uh, and that was part of the challenge, is how do I take for HCSC, which could have been a 90, 120 day process and get that into two or three days. How do I scale two or 300 people up? How do I scale them down? So that's part of what you'll see a little bit later in here. Uh, but on the SLA, we also simplified the SLAs. So in version two, we have three, right? Which uh, it's velocity, right? You want the supplier to go as fast as they can, but your risk then is defects. Right? So um, it's a yin and yang. They need to go as fast as they can with delivering minimum defects. And we never go with one supplier. In this, this new version, we have four, two tier ones and two uh, pure plays. And that becomes the organic competition. So they all want to deliver as fast as they can with a minimum amount of defects. And with our DevOps tooling and some of the governance you'll see in a little bit, we're polling every 60 seconds. Well, at the scale we're developing, you can't look at anything in 60 seconds, but we start aggregating at an hourly uh, basis and then a daily view and then a monthly view, and you start building the data that you can see where certain suppliers are based on uh, the profiles of the people they hire and their culture, where they're going to give you the most value. And I think that today gives you the ability to do funding in that fashion if you want to. Teams that are doing better you can fund them more and more, and teams that are not, you have that data to do it if you want Absolutely, to. through governance, we're very transparent. And I think another uh, tenant of this is, uh, I don't need suppliers, I don't need vendors, I need strategic partners. And we define what a strategic partner is, right? You should be able to come in, you should be comfortable telling us where this went well, where this didn't, and even if I can contractually hurt you, which I don't want to do, you should be comfortable telling me. And then the culture of HCSC, we're going to help you through it. But if you can't get through it, right, you try too many times, we're just going to organically take away your market share till you get it right or you're gone. Yeah, so I think, 
Yeah, so I think as we started talking through this, the way we measure is also changing. And Dan can probably talk through how it's in reality changing. The number of metrics historically as we started looking at on budget and on quality kind, we try to reduce it more to business outcomes and start focusing on only those key outcomes to, to look at end value coming out of these some of these teams. So Dan, you may want to talk through some of these. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's, uh, it's multidimensional. There's many different ways to look at it. And there's also many different ways for us to explain it, depending on who in the organization is asking. So when I talk to the COO, she has one view, right? She's looking at certain metrics where the CIO is, is looking at similar but a little different. And our CFO, right, uh, is unlike the other two. So it depends who's asking, uh, but we're prepared uh, to give all views because we do have the answer, we do have the data, and you know, uh, we can rapidly put that together for them. But on the performance metrics, um, uh, you've heard we have peer play and we have tier one. I'm not going to name the suppliers, but between the negotiated, uh, before I go to pricing, every single supplier signs the same contract. So we tested the market with that. Um, only two things can change, and that's the pricing, right, because that's unique to a supplier, and the SLA penalty. But the operating model, the SLAs, everything we do, how we do it, they sign the same contract. And because of our scale and volume, when they test us to say, ah, you know, our culture doesn't let us do this, then we're saying, okay, then you're not a good fit, right? Move on. And so far, nobody's moved on. <laughs> so um, with that, there's a 46% difference between our lowest cost pure play and our highest cost tier one. Between our two tier ones, there's a 22% premium. So instead of arguing with the suppliers uh, and telling them they should be priced like everybody else, uh, we understood what they believe their value is. We put it in a contract committing it back to us, and as measured by us at the end of a sprint or whatever the uh, milestone is, probably a bad term in Agile, milestone, but you know, whatever the breakpoint is, uh, we determine whether we got that value or not. And if we didn't, we have the right to reduce the invoice by that amount. But again, HCSE uh, has a very ethical culture. Actually, eight years in a row, we're the world's most ethical company by whoever rates that. Uh, so suppliers are comfortable that we'll do the right thing. And definitely want to emphasize that as we get to some of these metrics, the employee focus is also equally important because they're highly commingled and they're equally participating in this process. And given that it runs at a certain pace, I think the employee motivation also needs to be equally high at that point in time. So having the right metrics for your employees is also critical. That's a good point. Right. OK. Uh, and I think as we start getting into how we manage our sourcing organization internally, I think the roles within which sourcing organization plays is also changing from what it was traditionally to where we are as an innovator. And I think Dan can talk through how his organization roles are changing uh, in engaging in a more agile world. And you've heard me through uh, the session so far talk a little bit about how the framework changes, how we communicate differently to whoever we're communicating in the organization. Same message, but maybe a different delivery. Um, 
And there's a slide I'm thinking about that uh, I use internally. It's just one slide, works with everybody. Uh, and it's above the line and below the line. So below the line is what a traditional uh, supply chain discipline will teach you. You know, what you usually do in procurement, what you usually do in sourcing, uh, very valuable. And then above the line is the value add. As we're evolving into some of these different models, here's the additional elements that our customers expect us to deliver on. Some of it may be the project management capability, pushback to them, or true strategic advisors. They, uh, they want us to say, wait a second, based on our experience and what we're seeing and how we're doing this across the enterprise, uh, tell us when we're doing it wrong. So you know, that's a change from the sourcing organization that I walked into when I got here, uh, because the culture of sourcing, the culture of the company, and actually the development back to mainframe call ball was a, was a, a, a vastly different culture. Um, but as uh, we started this trial and error to get to the second framework, and as different folks were seeing the benefit, not only the suppliers, not only the business owners, but the employees. Uh, but then we had a situation where uh, some employees got it and embraced it, and some didn't, and they continued to fight. So we still have a lot of waterfall left in HCSC, right? We still have 109,000 MIPS, right? So we have a need for strong people. Uh, and they tend to gravitate there. But the new folks out of university, the ones who embrace, the ones who understand it, uh, we have plenty of room for them uh, to go ahead and operate this model. Yep. So and I think that's pivots. One, one quick go ahead. Previous slide. Um, I think what but I, I think I really want to make sure you guys take away from this nothing else. So it's not the traditional value player is bad and innovator is good, right? You need the traditional people. You need people who are cost conscious and focused and make sure everything ticks and ties and make sure that we get what we pay for. I think what we're saying is you just have to augment that with other talents too. And it's not always going to be the same person. I think one person can do all three of these. First, I think I'm the guy on the left. But you need somebody to say, let's challenge that. How do we maybe put some skin in the game? Both, I think for a traditional procurement professional, very hard to say the upside is going to be open-ended, right? You get paid to it. But if you're now talking about true business value and you have your marketing stakeholders at the table, you're talking about building a product like grow share. Maybe it's going to take you into B2C space because you never played in that space before. <coughs> it's maybe good to think of creative, innovative ways to pr put the right incentives in place, which may expose you on some level, but also drives the right outcomes. And I think sort of, if you, come, you know, if you come from a traditional background, you may never even think that way. So being able to spruce up your team with this th different types of skills and talents, uh, somebody who will think about user experience, somebody who will be a deep technologist that really understands what it takes to build something, not just the dollars and cents. I think you need all of those skills. Well, that's a good point, but uh, one element that, that I don't think we touched yet, it's also the expectation of the business. So uh, when we started doing this, if the business had a typical three to five year strategy of how they were going to improve a claim system or whatever it happens to be, that's a problem. Because at the pace of what we're delivering at Agile and the pace of change in the industry, right, you're, you're writing code that's already dated uh, before you start. So part of the mindset we had to change with the business is just think in year, no more than year blocks. What do you want to accomplish? 
and let's accomplish something that, that we can either shift to the right a little bit, shift to the left, or uh, if you have to, abandon for all the right reasons. Uh, and with the sourcing organization, if you have a sourcing organization, I'm sure you have great people, but if they don't think that way, uh, they're going to lead the business in a traditional way, uh, and it makes a difference. And I've yet to have a business owner be upset with us when we make you know, respectful and kind recommendations. A lot of times they're appreciative. That takes us pretty well to the next slide of, you know, while most people invest a lot in operating model change from an IT perspective, I think the operating model even within the sourcing world needs to change within more from a procurement organization changes of how you start managing some of these vendors, get to a certain degree of maturity. Now, obviously, ad hoc contracting was where it was historically, and that's some elements of supplier management that, that Dan was talking of that's below the line. But I think getting to a more and more active, trying to be uh, tied to your business of what does that one-year vision look like, like how Dan was talking of, that enables the sourcing organization to be a bit more proactive, uh, also to some extent play a check and balance with what IT has with its own vision, then your experiences in your own organization. Oh, absolutely, and the line blurs quite often. The uh, really on the back end, so uh, my teams often hear me say this. Though it's not easy, the easiest part of the journey is getting the contract signed. Right, the, the hardest part is harvesting the business value realization through governance. And everything we do uh, in this agile type of model is dependent on governance. Right? You can either strongly govern it uh, and fairly, and you get a lot of value. Or if you take your eyes off the ball just for a short time, um, you've got a mess to clean up. With that, uh, we've constructed an enterprise supplier management team. Um, which is the team across the enterprise that sets the standards for how we govern and how you do an effective QBR, how you do an effective SBR, how you do an effective site visit. When we go see the customers offshore or onshore, uh, we're always in control. Uh, I like the, to use the term offensive, even though we're kind, right, and we're collaborative, we never want to be on the defensive. Uh, with that, um, our um, operational governance, which actually sits in the business. So operational governance sits in IT, and they're actually measuring the stuff. They're actually using the tooling, and they're working hand-in-hand -hand with the enter enterprise supplier uh, management, who's working hand-in-hand -hand with sourcing, right? part of the procure-to-pay type process. So it becomes more complex, uh, but it gives you more value. And I see on the performance management, uh, you know, there's a thing on predictive analytics. So in our first three years, right, um, we didn't know what we were doing, right? I'll be honest. Uh, we had a good idea. We had good guidance, right? We were uh, trying to battle many different things, culture, suppliers. Suppliers push back hard, right? The ones that push too hard aren't with us anymore. Uh, and the ones that turned in the right amount of time are trusted partners. So 24 months of data we have from our DevOps tools so with a high degree of certainty, if the IT team says, I need 300 people, I want them from supplier A or B, we can go back and look at the history and look at the performance when we scale that supplier in, in that amount of time with that number of people, and we can start looking for patterns 
and we can advise them that, hey, you know, the last two times we did this, uh, this was the result, right? Defects went up, velocity slowed down, um, and we're not seeing anything with the supplier that, that would lead us to believe that we could do it better this time. So traditionally, our customer, which is our IT organization and health analytics organization, and their customer, which is the business, never thought of our organization as providing that kind of value. Now it's expected. Okay. Boris, you want to sure. talk through a practical guide? Well, and I think maybe just to, to live, live the room a little bit. So maybe just going to do a quick show of hands. Uh, for who, for how, if, in your organization, who's, who is not even talking or thinking about any of this stuff? All right, no hand. So people talk or think about this stuff. One hand. Oh, sorry. Okay, let's see. Apologize. Um, who is talking about this stuff but not actually doing much about this? A couple of hands. Who's been able to do this? Um, I would say it was a couple of pods, right? So maybe a couple of teams, a couple of products working really well, but hasn't scaled it yet. But it is actually matured. I was expecting a lot more hands of work, not doing anything but just talking about this great. And so all the rest of you means you guys fully mastered this, you figured this out. <laughs> no, but thank you. I mean, I think, it's like I said before, this is the beginning of a conversation, right? This is not black and white. I think people are going to think and learn, and we'll, we'll all get smarter together about this. But I think step one is, there has to be really tight alignment between <laughs> IT, business, and procurement, right? It, I think we have to start breaking those silos down. Um, because without that, you can't get anywhere, right? You have to sort of understand what we're trying to do in the line of incentives. And finance, because you have the money. Okay. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> uh, I think that it's also important to be realistic. Trying to go from zero to fully agile in a year not going to be realistic. Like this, that you're going to fail before you ever got started. So understand your capabilities, understand your needs. That's, uh, that's true, but the, our motto, and you have to take it in the right context, was fail and fail often, right? You should learn from every time you fail, right. uh, but don't be afraid to make mistakes. That's, that's yeah. part of the journey. I think it's setting those expectations of you're not going to get it right at right outside. Yeah, and making people comfortable with that. I think, and then it really goes back to the Right, getting the right people, putting the right organization around them to make them successful, um, and just really be supportive. Right, I guess it's a journey, and I think there's enough data out there, there's enough examples that if you get it right, the returns are great. But it's not an IT problem, it's not a procurement problem, it's really a new way of working. And if I may, I think most of change comes with three or four elements it's a mindset change, it's a skill change. It's a talent change and all tied to a culture. So I think all of this needs to blend into a good, good operating model that the organization can really uplift. Okay, so let me maybe, uh, see if there's any questions. We have a few minutes left. Please. Any uh, touch about estimations? And as far as I know, in, in the HR team, the team itself is estimating uh, the storage points, the efforts, sure. uh, limits. Uh, and that brings you, you then to the velocity. And uh, if, if you're buying a fixed price base from me, 
with a penalty at the end, then my estimation and screen number two will not look like the first one. So how do you solve that estimation? So uh, it's a great point. I would say it's probably it's not only specific to Agile. We have the same issue model today. You push a supplier to fix contract. Of course, you're going to put some padding on there. Now, one could argue that may not be a bad thing because a you just limited your your downside. And if you were doing it internally and it just goes on and on and on, which happens to internal projects too, you limited the downside. And the vendor has a little bit of um, cushion and when it does go over, as most IT projects tend to do, they can actually deliver and not start pulling their best people. Um, so having said that, I, anytime I advise clients, the first thing I, I tell them, like, you have to have an independent estimate. So yes, you're going to have the top SIs come in and put their quotes and you know there's some cushion built in there. But you have to have somebody in your own team that says, based on previous experience, based on my understanding of technology, here's what's realistic or not. Um, and, and yes, you, you test the market, but you have to have your own point of view what makes sense. And what I, what I would also warn against, the most dangerous stuff is not even when they overestimate. If they're 20% high, that's unfortunate, but it gets delivered. The worst is when they, it's 50% lower than what you think it should be. Yeah. Because usually it's not because they're so good and you just don't know what you're talking about. Usually it's because they either don't understand the scope or worse yet, they don't care. They figure they'll make it up later and change orders in other ways. One, to add to that, uh, and you're probably already aware, but the concept that's very hard for our business to understand is a story point's not equal to a story point. So each feature set, right, you can't do a comparison between I did X number of story points in this feature set and this. That's not how it works, right, when you add it up and you start putting it together. Uh, so that's some of the challenges. And we don't report to our business the number of story points. We do measure it internally because we understand that. But if we did that in the business, it'd be chaos. Yeah, but I, and I think once you start doing this, and they all the DevOps is out there, there's a lot of data you can glean out of it. So over time, you can really use the data and say, can you get it better, better, you get it faster, it's a quality improving. Absolutely. And you can use that to manage each team in the panel, right? Not but the peanut butter Yeah, do you really want to be scientific versus having certain guardrails of how you define that? I, th I think that's where you start defining whether it's really an art or a science.